Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Laura here. A quick note before we dive into today's show. The 100th episode of Unchained is coming up. I know, hard to believe. Side note for those of you keeping score at home, included in the count were special recordings from conferences. For the 100th episode, I want to hear from you. Send me a voicemail or an audio recording telling us your name, where you're from, and anything else you'd like to say related to the show. Whether it's what you've learned from Unchained, your favorite moment or guest, how you listen, or whatever else you'd like to say. Then finish it off with a prediction about what will happen in the crypto space in 2019. You can easily record a message on the Voice Memos app of your smartphone or using an app on your computer. If you do that, email your file to laurashinpodcast at gmail.com with the subject line 100. Again, that email address is laura, L-A-U-R-A, shin, S-H-I-N, podcast at gmail.com and use the subject line 100. Or you can call and leave me a voice message at 917-675-4882. That's a U.S. number, so my international fans should use country code 1. Again, that number is 917-675-4882. As a reminder, tell us your name, where you're from, and whatever you'd like to say about the show, and then round it out with a crypto prediction for 2019. The deadline for these submissions is Thursday, December 20th. I look forward to having you guys take over the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop into iTunes to give us a top rating or review that helps other listeners find the show. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. The future of lending is here. Alt Lending enables companies to leverage their Bitcoin or Ethereum assets to borrow U.S. dollars. To learn more, go to altlending.com and use promo code UNCHAINED for offer details for an interest-free month. Crypto collateralized. Altlending.com. My guest today is Ari Paul, CIO of Block Tower Capital. Welcome, Ari. Thank you very much for having me, Laura. I want to start with your background. You played poker seriously, if not exactly professionally. You then were a professional trader. And in crypto, everyone's always talking about this mystical, quote, institutional money, because people seem to think that when big financial institutions get into crypto, prices will go up and everything will moon. However, you used to be institutional money. So tell us about your pre-crypto background in more detail and how you draw on those experiences as a crypto investor. Sure. Uh, yeah, so before launching Block Tower, I was a portfolio manager and risk manager at the University of Chicago Endowment, um, which is a $8 billion pool of capital. And the, the endowment world is kind of its own little island where um, most endowments follow what's called the Yale model because it was pioneered by, by the Yale Endowment uh, 20, 25 years ago. And that model is mostly a fund-to-funds model. So these endowments typically have teams between 15 and 30 people, and then they'll allocate to external managers. And the idea is that if you have $8, billions of, $8 billion that you want to allocate, um, you could either have a really big team doing it. So, for example, the Harvard Endowment is kind of the exception. And they had, um, I believe they've been downsizing, but they had a team of over 400 people. And they were kind of like a hedge fund, a global hedge fund that did everything. That's actually uh, the, it, one thing that... I've been, always been really focused on is why really smart, hardworking people make bad investment decisions. And it's almost always structural. So here's this is a really good example of this. One of the main reasons why other endowments didn't try the Harvard model is because uh, of the, this kind of very key bureaucratic element, which is if you want to attract the top talent in the world, which you do to manage $8 billion, or, or in Harvard's case, closer to 40, 
you have to pay them a lot, right? That, that person is an incredibly rare, valuable talent. That's the person who would be running their own, you know, $8 billion hedge fund and, and collecting massive fees potentially to do so. And it's really unpalatable for a university, a nonprofit institution to be paying, you know, the president of the university, maybe a million a year, maybe 5 million a year, and then to pay some hedge fund manager a hundred million a year, right? Or $500 million a year. It's very hard to have that as a budget item that, you know, it's like, why are we paying 50 times to this hedge fund person what we're paying the president of the university? It doesn't feel fair. And the reality is that you kind of have to pay that to the world's best money managers, or you're not, you just can't, can't get them. You're going to pay it one way or another, but it's easier bureaucratically to pay it through fees than through salary. So in, in the, in the U Chicago and the Yale model, they are paying the, that same price, but they're paying it indirectly through fees, right? So they, they pay no salary to a hedge fund manager they hire. What they do is they say, okay, we're going to give you $100 million. And if you double it, you get 20% carry, let's say. So we're going to pay you $20 million. But that $20 million never appears in the budget anywhere. Instead, what the university sees is the endowment made $80 million, right? So the investment made $100, 20% of that went mm-hmm. to the fund. And so the, endow- the university says, oh, great, you made $80 million bucks. Um, whereas if they were directly employing that hedge fund manager, it would be, wow, we're paying this person $20 million. That's crazy, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of decisions in the world in general, but especially in the investment world, get made because of that kind of – the term that gets used is optics, which is uh, you know appearances. A lot of decisions get made due to appearances, and sometimes those decisions are not the best investment decisions. So the, that was a little bit of a tangent that I find interesting and, and that I think about kind of, and I'll, it'll, I'll connect it to the crypto world. But uh, so the U Chicago, uh, we function very much like most other endowments, which was mostly hiring external managers. Our job as investment staff was to first set high level allocation. So uh, how much of the endowment do we want in cash, treasuries, real estate? How much do we want to be in the US versus global? And then once you pick an area, so you say, okay, we want to have you know, 5% of the endowment in non-US real estate. Then you say, okay, who do we hire to actually allocate that? Who do we hire to buy specific commercial real estate buildings to, you know, to, to buy specific real estate complexes? And then, and you, you look for the best in the world and you spend a lot of time doing diligence to understand, are they really as good as, as we hope they are? So my job at the endowment was uh, a bunch of things. I wore a lot of hats. One was um, participating in those kind of high-level strategic allocation decisions. Another was uh, vetting individual managers, doing on-site visits, due diligence, spending many, many months. It, generally, the process is six to 12 months to invest with a new manager. Um, it's a long getting-to-know-you process. The, the main reason for the length of time is... Um, the, the people who are selling you, in this case, the hedge fund manager or the real estate manager or the venture capitalist, they're really smart people who know what you want to hear. And uh, how do you differentiate a really smart, hardworking person who knows what you want to hear from the person you really want to invest in? Because they, they can all say basically the first hour of conversation is identical between the good one and the bad one. And the answer is there isn't really a, a magic bullet. It just if you spend a lot of time over months and months and months talking to the same person, if their if their story is contrived, if they don't really believe it, if it's not really accurate, eventually holes appear. Eventually, there's a red flag. There's some something minor they slip up, or something minor. You know, you're talking to the executive assistant, or the assistant trader, or the CTO, and they say one little thing that contradicts something else you heard, or contradicts the story in your head, and then you dive into that. So it's it's a really long drawn out process. Typically, it can often be years of getting to know a manager before the investment is made, and so that. I, I knew that sales process. I knew how slow and, and ponderous the allocation process is for these institutions. So in early 2017, uh, I was at the University of Chicago, and I, I started the process of trying to, over the long run, get UChicago and other endowments into crypto because uh, I thought it was you know in our interest as endowment. Um, and so I, and and I knew that it would be a really long process. And my my thinking at the time, literally, this was how I framed it to my colleagues, was. If I don't do anything, I think UChicago invests in crypto in 18 months. And if I do a really good job of convincing people, maybe it's 12 months. And that six-month difference, if UChicago can be at the front end versus the back end of institutional investing, I think will make a big difference in terms of our return. You know, So I wasn't really naive about it, and yet I still underestimated how slow and long of a process it is. You know, so we've had the headlines recently of many, many large endowments investing in crypto in different ways. So 
Harvard and Yale, uh, there have been public reports out that they have allocated to some of the newest crypto funds. Indirectly, uh, many of these endowments were actually in last year because they were invested, for example, in Andreessen Horowitz, and Andreessen Horowitz had invested in crypto funds. So indirectly, the endowments had crypto exposure last year, but this year was the first time uh, a few months ago when they directly allocated to crypto funds. And in their heads, um, what the endowments say is they did not consciously invest in crypto yet. What they've done is they invested in trusted managers. So these are these are endowments that have had you know decade long relationships with Andreessen Horowitz, for example, and uh, have been, they invest in every fund that Andreessen comes out with. And Andreessen said, "Hey, we're doing a crypto fund. You know us. You trust us. You know the partner uh, Chris Dixon is a is a great investor overall, who has a proven track record in in both crypto and non crypto. And so they framed it as." This is not a new category. It's not a new asset class. It's not a new type of investment. This is just the next Andreessen fund. And it's the next kind of fintech focused investment. That's a major difference. And so understanding that psychology makes me think that endowments are not racing to, to fund 10 other crypto funds. You know, it's going to be a slow process. Um, similarly, it, it, you know, the, the way this always works is you have kind of the trailblazers. You have people who will make that first small investment, and that kind of makes it okay. But it's a slow process. So, okay, Yale is is investing. Well, now it's responsible for every other endowment to at least look at it. If Yale posts a good quarter, so if Yale invests in the, this first wave of crypto funds and uh, maybe they only put, I, I actually don't know the exact numbers. Um, I don't know if they're public, but um, you know they put a tiny bit of their money, a tiny, tiny bit. But if that tiny bit earns an outsized return over the, over the next year, suddenly it shifts from uh, the, the, the thought process at every other endowment goes from, man, if, the, if we invest in this and it goes wrong, we're in trouble. We have to justify basically investing in Bernie Madoff or tulips. We're going to face ridicule. We're going to face career risk. To suddenly the concern shifts to the opposite end. Suddenly the concern is, why did we miss this? Right? Were we doing our jobs? If 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 Yale, if our leading peers, if the largest and most respected competing asset allocators chose to make this investment and it did really really well, we then are on the hook to justify why we passed. And that change in thinking from one of fear of loss to fear of missing out happens uh, fairly quickly. It's not on a dime, and it requires a few things to happen. Like you know, so the first thing happened, which is Yale made the investment. Now the next thing is that has to go well. Has to go well, for, and I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe it's you know a great quarter that gets written up in the New York Times as Yale put you know zero point one percent of their capital in and earned a four hundred percent return in a quarter. You know, could be something like that. Uh, and suddenly that becomes a discussion point at every other endowment, and now now they have to justify not doing it. And so let's let's talk a little bit about Block Tower strategy because that's different from some of the other crypto funds because you guys will actively trade on events and short-term price swings. And so just so listeners know, I don't normally reveal when we're recording in relation to when this will come out, but we are recording during this period in which Bitcoin has dropped below 5,000 for the first time this year. Ripple has overtaken Ethereum by market cap. And this morning when I took a look at CoinMarketCap, every single crypto asset was down except the stable coins, which were all up by less than 1%. So on a day like today, when there are big price swings, what, what does that look like for you? What are you doing? Yeah. So uh, first, one one kind of caveat. Um, there's all sorts of really complicated regulation around um, in, in the investment world. So there's a lot of things that I, I can't talk about. What I can talk about is um, kind of the really high level way we think about investing at Block Tower. So my kind of high level thesis on crypto from the beginning, from a portfolio management perspective, has been this is hyper, hyper volatile. And that fact in and of itself actually leads to a lot of decisions. So um, one really interesting dynamic is the nature of compounding and rebalancing. So here's a, an example. If someone is 100% long crypto and crypto is up 100% in that year, you think that's a pretty good strategy. And if and if instead I'm only 50% long crypto and crypto is up 100% a year, I'm probably going to underperform. That sounds like a loss, right? And it actually isn't necessarily true. So if there's enough volatility over the course of that year, and if I rebalance, whether actively or passively, um, so let's say I have 50% crypto, 50% cash, and I say anytime that that split, so if crypto rallies, what's going to happen is my crypto is worth more, my cash is worth the same. And so I now have more than 50% crypto, right? I might become 60% crypto, 70%. If I say every time it gets to 70%, I'm going to rebalance back to 50-50. And every time crypto falls and it becomes 30%, I'm going to rebalance back to 50-50. That may actually outperform the 100% long portfolio, even in a bull run, even in an up market. 
It's a function of how, what is the rally and how much volatility is there. So a key thesis of mine uh, for, I don't know, three, four years has been, this is a hypervolatile market that's going to stay hypervolatile for the foreseeable future. And I, I still very much believe that. Um, if over, the, over time, the volatility is falling. It actually, as, as volatile as it is, as, it been, as it's been in the last year, it's less volatile than it was in 2010, in 2014, but it's still you know extremely volatile. And so the first way I approach situations like this is kind of with that in mind, which is to say things can go further than we can almost imagine. The idea, you know, when Bitcoin was at 19,000, if you had said Bitcoin's going to be at 6,000, that felt like the end of the world. It was like, that is such a cataclysmic scenario. It's hard to imagine. You know, then with Bitcoin at 6,000, it's like, okay, well, what is really blood on the streets? What's really the worst thing we can imagine? And it's maybe 4,000. It's, you know, we almost got there um, that, you know, that, that was very close to the low. And now it's, well, what about 2,000? You know, what's, what's an unimaginable number that we, that this crypto's dead, right? Um, and, and the reality is that it, it's almost uh, always more extreme than we think. Um, the same was true in the financial crisis in 2008, where people said, you know, it's, it's unfathomable for a prime broker to fail. It's, it's almost not worth thinking about because it's such a bad scenario. It just means the world is over. And of course, the world wasn't over. Uh, it was a really bad scenario. It might have felt like the world was over, but you needed to be a prudent uh, kind of thoughtful investor throughout that. And you needed to think about, you, you can't say this scenario is so bad, I'm just not even going to think about it, right? You, you have to incorporate those scenarios in your thinking. It doesn't mean that you can predict them, but but you definitely want to have that as part of your plan. So in a situation like this, um, there's kind of two thoughts. One is it, you don't want to fall into a value trap. You don't want to say just because something is down 90% or 95%, that doesn't make it a good buy. Maybe it's worth zero. Maybe the fundamentals have changed. Maybe it was worth you know, maybe Ethereum was worth a thousand dollars earlier in the year, and maybe something's changed, and now it's only worth fifty. But if you if you have conviction in the fundamentals, if you think it's largely a technical or market psychology driven sell off, then what you need is a plan to of where and when you're going to buy, and that's how I approach it, which is generally uh, kind of gradually legging in, gradually scaling in, because I can't pick pick the exact low certainly, and so kind of gradually accumulating thinking through what happens if, right? If Bitcoin fell to 2000, what do I, what position do I want to have in that scenario? Do I want to have dry powder to buy there or should I have put all my dry powder to work first? So I can tell you in this scenario, my thinking is uh, kind of gradually scaling in, thinking hard about which assets to scale into. It's not automatic that the thing I loved a year ago, I, I you know, it, it's not like, oh, well, I liked buying this thing a year ago at $80. Now it's 10. Therefore that's a sale. Well, maybe not, you know? So kind of fundamental underwriting of what do we like owning and then scaling in intelligently. And then I know that your fund allocates to both short-term and long-term trading. So how much is allocated to each bucket? Yeah, so we actually can't talk about it. It's actually problematic from a regulatory perspective to talk about any specific investment vehicles. So, so okay. you, you, you can talk about a firm, but not about a specific investment entity. Well, can you say so? Because my next question for you was, since I know that you actively trade on forks, I was curious to know how you traded the Bitcoin Cash hard fork. Yeah, so so it, it's again, it's distinguishing talking about trading versus talking about kind of a, a vehicle for that. Uh, so the with the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, um, we spent a lot of time. I love hard forks as tradable events. I love kind of event driven trades, uh, and the reason I love them is because. You get to make a bet around a very concentrated time frame. So, if I think, for example, that I, an, an asset um, is is, I'll use a, a concrete example. So, disclosure: uh, we we own Monero. Um, if I believe in Monero long term, or I like it as a long term investment, and I'm going to buy it and hold it, and I, I don't really have a clear sense of timing or catalyst, I'm exposed to a lot of risk, a lot of idiosyncratic risk. So, there's a lot that can happen having nothing to do with Monero. Like you know, as we saw, so. Monero is selling off with the market. And I don't think it's that there's anything. I don't think it's that it's Monero selling off. I think it's that Monero is selling off with the market. So that bet on Monero is exposed to this uh, these other risks. It's exposed to what's happening in Bitcoin. It's exposed to what's happening with regulation over a long time frame. And that's just a lot of risk. If instead I get to say, I think over the next week, Monero is going to be higher, I get to make a short-term concentrated bet that leaves me less exposed to things that aren't really part of that bet. So hard forks are great for that because there's a, you know, there's a date or a block height that you get to make a bet on. Uh, you can make a bet on around two weeks saying of how you think it's going to play out. Um, I also think it's a spot where, uh, you know, I, I'm not a cryptographer or an engineer at all. It, it, there's a lot of areas in crypto where there's smarter people in the room than me and, and people who have far more knowledge and experience. One of the few areas where um, I think 
you know, we can really compete well is kind of the game theory side, the poker side. Um, you know, you mentioned that I was a poker player playing kind of semi-professionally in college. In many ways, crypto is a poker game. It's a small number of holders, a small number of whales, a small number of key decision makers who determine outcomes. You can, you can identify them. Sometimes you can name them and speak with them. And, uh, they won't necessarily just tell you what they're going to do or what they hold, but it's kind of like poker. It's trying to figure out what cards do they really hold. You know, it's like you see the bets they're making and you have to read between the lines and you can't do it perfectly, but you can take educated guesses. And then it gets more complex because it's not a heads up poker game. It's not that you have one opponent. You're trying to figure out this complex web of interactions of how every one of those poker players thinks about what everyone else is holding, because that's going to impact their decision making. So, so I love looking at hard forks. Um, with Bitcoin Cash, with this hard fork, uh, frankly, I found it very challenging to decipher. Um, we spent a lot of time digging into it, trying to monitor the variables in real time, trying to understand the signaling. We actually ended up not making major bets. We made a couple really, really, really small bets, but frankly, couldn't get a handle on kind of what we thought was really going on and driving things and, and the decision making. The way I think of it is um, it's mostly a game of chicken between probably um, Calvin, Craig Wright's uh, very wealthy friend from with a gambling fortune, Calvin and Jahan, Air. Calvin Ayer, and, 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 and Jahan of Bitmain. And it's a game of chicken, meaning um, the best case for both of them is if the other gives up quickly. And uh, that's the best case, but it's a prisoner's dilemma. If neither give up for a long period of time, they both cost, cost themselves and each other huge amounts of money. So the game is signal to the other side really, really aggressively and powerfully that you are in it for the long haul and you're going to lose as much as you need to and you are going to win this and convince the other side to, to back down quickly. That's, that's what we've seen very clearly, especially from the Craig Wright, Calvin Iyer side, which is, you know, they have publicly committed over and over that they are going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on this, right? Calvin is saying, I'm going to spend my own fortune funding unprofitable hash uh, power mining because we're going to win this and we're willing to throw away an unlimited amount of money and unlimited amount of time to do this. And Johanna Bitmain has said similar things, although not quite as strongly on, on the um, ABC side. Now, the reality, do, do either of them really mean that? Very hard to say, because either way, whether or not they truly intend that, it makes sense for them to say it. Like that's, that's the, the game theory. No matter what, they should be saying that, whether they mean it or not. So do they actually mean it? Very hard to say. And it's also dependent on their level of belief in whether the other person means it. And that depends, in, uh, on, among other things, on ongoing signaling. So um, if, I'll give you an example of something that I thought was weak signaling. So um, Roger Ver, for example, threw a huge amount of hash power to Bitcoin ABC from his mining pool. And he did so publicly and announced it. But he announced that it was going to be, at least part of that, was a one-day exercise. That one day gave ABC a lead in terms of total work done, which was critical. It, it, it produces a little bit of a margin of safety. But by signaling that it was only one day, it, it's not that credible, right? So it, it, it's, it's a kind of one-time thing. It's not an ongoing threat. In contrast, the, one of the things that uh, N-Chain and, and Craig Wright Calvin side is doing is they've created this ambiguous threat of a block reorganization. They've hinted that they are mining in secret and mining the ABC chain longer than the, the kind of public ABC chain. And no one really knows if that's true, how true it is. It's very hard to quantify the exact cost of doing that. No one's sure if they actually have the mining power to make that happen. Uh, and that vague ambiguity, that kind of ominous ongoing threat, the fact that it has no expiration date is very powerful. Basically, we don't know when we're safe. Uh, and by we, I just mean anyone who's investing in ABC or part of the ABC ecosystem, because it's a it's a threat that almost can't be falsified because we almost it's very hard to disprove that that threat still exists in a month or six months. And because we know it's going to be hard to disprove that threat, that's a major kind of powerful negotiating position. Let's switch to your longer-term investments. You recently hired someone from Expa to head up your venture investments, and yet I know that you've also been tweeting and talking about how it's not really certain yet how to value crypto assets. So given that uncertainty, what is your venture strategy or what is your current thesis on how to value crypto assets? Sure. Um, yeah, a few different questions in there. So uh, I, I think one important thing to note is VCs very often, the early stage ones, the best ones, are investing under extreme ambiguity. So my favorite example is the VCs who invested in Yahoo in the mid-90s, in 1995, 1996, there was no business model for Yahoo. There was no model to value it. So 
that was the, the time of eyeballs and it was early in, tr- in thinking about eyeballs. So, you know, there were people who said, okay, we, we know that the, the internet, I mean, there were people at that time who even doubted whether the internet would be a big thing. But even if you said, okay, we get the internet's going to be a big thing. We're not sure exactly what. And at the time, it's important to remember the internet wasn't a big thing yet. Fewer than, uh, t- less than 10% of the world had internet access at that point. So, you know, it wasn't, the internet was not anything like what we think of as today. Um, and there were a lot of naysayers and people who said, okay, the internet is mostly for pornography and looking at pictures of cats. And um, maybe it's, maybe it's an incremental improvement. It's a faster way of communicating, but you know, it was hard to, for many people, it was hard to imagine the revolutionary impact. So, but even if you accepted that the internet is going to be this huge, massive world changing thing, and you said, well, search engines make sense. We need ways of organizing that information and finding it. How do you value a search engine? How big will that be? What are the, what's the competitive strategy element? Is it, is it winner take all? Are you going to have a hundred different search engines? What are the network effects? Uh, and then even if you have winner take all, even if you have a couple search engines that conquer that, how do they monetize it? What, what is the dollar value per user? No one had good answers to this. And the idea of monetizing eyeballs was genuinely an unknown. You know, when, when Facebook launched even, and that was much later, Eduardo Saverin, the co-founder, was going door to door trying to sell Facebook ads to local butchers. You know, he was, it wasn't obvious how would you monetize Facebook users. And, and yet, yet these, these very smart VCs invested in Yahoo. And how did they do it? So I, I think the, now I, I'm not a venture capitalist by trade or experience. And so everything I say on this is a little bit superficial. But with that caveat, the general approach is you say, um, first, what is the addressable market in, in, within an order of magnitude? Within a, a, in other words, we're not trying to come up with an exact number. We're trying to say, is this a, a billion-dollar market or a $100 billion market? And so the smart VCs said, okay, we think the internet is going to be massive, world-changing, global. We think search is going to be a massive, massive market, more than $100 billion. Then the question becomes, okay, call it a $100 billion addressable market. Let's say we think that network effects... And, and kind of the natural way we think about this business model suggests there probably won't be that many winners. This probably won't look like dry cleaners where you have privately owned dry cleaners on every street. It probably looks a bit more like kind of winner take all markets. You know, maybe you have one or two or five winners. In that case, let's, let's assume that the leading search firm captures half that market. So $50 billion addressable market. And then the question is, well, how are they going to monetize that? What percentage of that market can they capture? And that's really tough with eyeballs. And so you look at traditional advertising models and you try to in some way extrapolate. So you say, okay, maybe like the, the physical, the value of a physical visitor who sees a bus stop ad, what's that value? And maybe we try to draw some comparison to the internet world, however bad that comparison is. So we say, okay, we think of every person using it, it's likely that Yahoo can create at least $3 a year of value per user. Um, and, and it's going to be a back of the envelope estimate you won't have tons of confidence in. But you come up with some number. Then you say, okay, we've come up with some estimate for what we think potentially this business is worth at maturity. What are the odds Yahoo captures that? What are the odds Yahoo is the winner? And that last piece I actually think is the hardest. It's the one that's the most vague because uh, it's so hard to identify. Is this the, the early stage team that is going to conquer this massive world-changing use case? And that's and the really VC, good VCs, I think that's the part they're best at. And frankly, that's the part I'm worst at, which is why we we uh, we brought Eric on to our team because that's his experience and, and not something I'm good at. And evaluating is this a team that has a credible potential to be the winning team? So then you say, okay, we think this team has a shot. And, and we don't know if that shot is 5% or 20%, but it, whether you explicitly quantify it or just in your head, you're assigning some number to it. Call it 10%. That this is the team that does it. So then you multiply those numbers together. So you say $100 billion market. The winner, we think, takes half of that. We think that's uh, that's this many users at $3 per user. That gives us a do- that gives us cash flow or, or, or a valuation for the business. And then we say, we think this team has a 10% chance of getting that. So we're going to divide that number by 10 and you come up with kind of a present value. And then you're looking for that present value to be massively over the valuation of the business. So you have a chance to invest in Yahoo at a 50 million valuation. If that number you just came up with is 75 million, that's not that interesting because you, you know, all your numbers are imprecise. You're not, you're not trying to get, you know, a little bit of value here, but if the number you came up with back of the envelope is $5 billion, well, that 50 million maybe looks interesting. And, and a lot of your assumptions could be off substantially, and it could still be a good investment. So crypto, I approach it the same way. I can't tell you what the fair value of Bitcoin is today or will be in 20 years. But I, I have Bitcoin's actually one of the few coins that I have kind of a clearly coherent model. I can't tell you if it's right, but at least I have kind of a, a really clear um, pat, you know, thought process here, which is I think the addressable market for Bitcoin is 
probably at least to start the offshore banking, uh, offshore banking use case, which is roughly 20 to $30 trillion. And offshore banking gets used for a lot of things, including tax arbitrage. But one key use there is people want a way to store their money that can't be seized uh, arbitrarily. So the example I give here, because everyone, the answer everyone gives is, yeah, but that's for criminals, right? And the answer is no, every large US company makes use of it. Why? Well, Amazon, if Amazon had all of their money in a New York bank, then if it, let's say an employee or a supplier sues them and, and accuses them of doing something wrong, a judge, a single judge in New York could freeze all of Amazon's assets pre-trial. And then Amazon's out of business the next day because they can't make payroll. And that doesn't feel like a fair legal process or something Amazon wants to expose themselves to. So Amazon, you know, they're going to be held accountable by the law. They know that. They don't want to avoid that. But what they want is to have their day in court in front of many judges. And so Amazon has assets all over the world. And so if that New York judge freezes their assets, they can instantly freeze maybe, I don't know the number, 1%, 10% of Amazon's assets. And then that judge would try to apply that judgment around the world. And that would be like a five-year process. And over that five years, Amazon would have a chance to appeal and appeal and hear their case heard in, in jurisdictions around the world. So that's a really powerful use case that I, I, I think most people can kind of intuitively understand that you want to have your day in court uh, and, and potentially in front of multiple judges. That's just one use case, but uh, it's, it's kind of a clear example. And so m- the way my thinking is, okay, 20 to $30 trillion addressable market. Let's say I think that Bitcoin, uh, let's say I think the winning public cryptocurrency is likely to capture at least half of that, which I do. That gets us to call it 10 trillion. And then the question, here's the big question. What are the odds Bitcoin wins that use case? And that's very subjective and, and debatable. In my head, if, if I, if, you know, if we kind of pick an arbitrary number, let's say 10%, that gives us a, a, a value of 1 trillion at maturity. And then we take a present value of that because we know we're taking risk. We know there's a time value of money. So maybe that comes down to a present value today of something like you know, $300 billion, let's say, as a Bitcoin value. So that's just an example. All of those numbers that I stated might be wrong. Maybe Bitcoin's chance of success is 50% or 80%. But basically, almost any way I run those numbers, I come up with a bull case for Bitcoin from, or, or I don't want to say bull case, I come up with Bitcoin being a good value buy today. Probabilistically, it could fail. But in, in my eyes, that's the model I'm applying. And that's why I think, uh, and disclosure here, I, I am long Bitcoin. Um, I, that's why I think probabilistically, Bitcoin's probably a good investment at today's levels. So, but to answer your question about the VC, um, other coins are more complex to model. Uh, in VC investing in crypto, you can invest in companies that are very traditional. So Coinbase is a traditional company in terms of how you value it. They have cash flows, they have future cash flows, they have, you know, they provide products and services, they have costs. The, the challenge is it's, it's in a fast changing industry with a lot of questions and variables and regulatory complexity. But it's really not that different than investing in any tech startup in the 90s if you're investing in a company. We're going to talk more about Wall Street entering crypto, but first I'd like to take a quick break for our fabulous sponsors. A startup that completed an ICO and looking to leverage Ethereum for working capital. A miner looking to buy more rigs without having to sell Bitcoin. Alt Lending can help. Alt Lending enables companies to leverage their Bitcoin or Ethereum to borrow US dollars while retaining ownership of their crypto assets. We bring years of financial and technological expertise to the blockchain space. Access to institutional capital means borrowers don't have to wait weeks to receive a loan. Our simple and efficient vetting process makes getting a loan easy. No membership tokens or complicated sign-ups required. To learn more, go to altlending.com and use promo code UNCHAINED for offer details for an interest-free month. Asset Lending. Reimagined. Altlending.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? 
Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Face it, regulations can stall or kill a fast-moving crypto business. New Financial Action Task Force and European Union cryptocurrency AML laws are coming soon. You could be hit with stiff fines or blacklisted, no matter where your servers are in the world. Prepare now. Deploy the same powerful CypherTrace tools used by regulators. Protect your assets, streamline your compliance programs, and keep your exchange or crypto business out of the regulator's crosshairs. Learn how effective anti-money laundering tools help keep your crypto business safe and trusted. Learn more at CypherTrace.com slash Unchained. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. I'm speaking with Ari Paul of Blocktower Capital. I wanted to ask you about this new trend called generalized mining in which investors are participating in the networks in order to help seed activity on the network, like CoinFund and Multicoin and Polychain and some of the other funds are doing this. Is this part of Blocktower's strategy as well? Far less actively than uh, the peers you just mentioned. Um, it's it's uh, funny. We, we, so the CoinFund team are great, uh, Jake Bruckman and Alex and... Um, I've uh, they, 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 I've learned a lot from them on this point. It's something that uh, we're spending a lot of time thinking about from every angle. So one is the question of, of participation. So you know we we own major crypto assets and and uh, how do we participate in those networks from a kind of uh, profit making perspective? So to what degree should we be mining uh, or or staking or doing staking as a service? And then also from the kind of VC side. So there are a number of generalized mining startups that are getting funding now, and do we want to invest in them? And how do we think about investing in them? I honestly don't have uh, a really clear thesis in terms of modeling this or thinking about it from a competitive strategy perspective. I'm skeptical of the economic model a bit. So generalized mining is definitely going to be a thing. It is a thing. It is real. It is valuable. Uh, The people who participate in it will be adding huge value to the networks. The challenge I face, at least on the investment side, is it's very hard thinking about like a a question that I think people in crypto generally don't ask because very few people kind of come from this, uh, this competitive strategy background uh, that's very common in the business world, which is it's not enough to, I think I'll frame the mistake. The mistake is to say, this is a clear use case with clear demand. There's going to be value created here. This is a great team tackling it. Therefore it's a good investment. The problem is uh, I'll use the airline analogy. So over 40 years, basically from around 1960 to 2000, Airlines as an industry lost money. How's that possible? Because airline, the revenue growth was fantastic. Consumer, it was clearly a real use case, right? I mean, people fly. There's real value there. Uh, consumers got tremendous utility out of it. And yet, the industry as a whole didn't make money. Why? Because of competition. What happened was um, the air- airline travel is relatively undifferentiated. People don't really care whether they're flying on Delta or American for the most part. And so they price shop. And it's a race to the bottom on prices. It's fee compression. Uh, there's also um, rising cost co- competition. So if the Delta union negotiates a um, an increase in pay, the American Airlines union can tries to match it and, and is very likely to be successful. So basically, you, you're competing, all these airlines are competing against each other on both the cost side and the revenue side. And, and the result is that they end up with zero profits. The profits get competed away. That's great for consumers. It's potentially good for the employees who are able to negotiate pay raises, but it's really bad for, it's really bad for the investors. So what you generally want to invest in are things that have some type of monopoly. Uh, and that monopoly could be a natural monopoly. So, for example, um, if there's a great hotel on Miami beachfront property, well, there's only so much Miami beachfront property. It can be a monopoly around brand. So Coca-Cola, for example, they have created this kind of brand monopoly where if I came out with Ari Cola and it was exactly the same quality and 5% cheaper, I'm probably not taking that much market share from Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola, it's really their brand that's their monopoly. Um and sometimes it's it's a supply chain model. So Walmart, for example, they have these uh, these relationships with suppliers that are partly due to economies of scale, partly due to logistical expertise that it's very, very hard to compete with. If I try to compete against Walmart and source toothpaste at the same price as them, I'm just not going to be able to. They, they've, they basically have a monopoly on kind of getting the lowest price supplies uh, from a few different angles. So with the generalized mining, here's the problem. You get a really smart team. And they can do it really well, and they can provide the service. The question is, why won't their profits basically get competed to zero? Because there's going to be other smart teams competing. What is the differentiator? What's the natural monopoly? And it gets worse, because in this case, there's a natural player who has an incentive to basically offer the service for free. 
and that is uh, exchanges and custodians. So a very uh, probable outcome here, I think, is very similar to what we saw with with this kind of same thing in the prime brokerage model in traditional finance, which is uh, using stock lending, for example. So there's a business where if someone wants to go short in equity, they have to borrow that equity from someone else, and they typically have to pay to do so. Well, that's a business, and you and you could think there could be independent service providers who serve as that kind of middleman, right? The reality is you can't do it as a small provider because the, the big prime brokers, there are uh, they are basically paid by people to store to, to hold on to their assets because they're the most trusted. So State Street, for example, in New York, is I believe the largest custodian on the planet. And um, people pay them to hold their stock for them because they trust State Street. And State Street is then sitting on all of the stock that they basically get for free. And so they have an incentive to lend that out at a very, very, very small profit margin. You know, it's kind of like a free roll for them. They don't need to charge a high price because it's kind of free to them. And so if I'm trying to compete with State Street, I have to compete with someone who just for free has, you know, a trillion dollars in assets custody. I actually don't know the, the number they have custody, but very, very hard to compete against State Street at that business where they have such a natural advantage. So the problem with generalized mining is you look at a Coinbase. Well, Coinbase right now, uh, I don't know with, with the decline, but they're probably sitting on something like $5 billion in crypto assets. They have every incentive to put those assets to work. To, to be staking those assets to earn a return. And, and I don't know how this business model will evolve. It may be that Coinbase can keep that return for themselves. It may be that the people with assets on Coinbase will demand to receive most or all of that return. Uh, it may be a hybrid. I'm not sure. But for me to compete with Coinbase and generalized mining, it's going to be very hard for me to you know, charge basically the same fees because Coinbase is sitting on $4 billion of assets that they kind of have for free. They're kind of paid to custody those assets. Mm-hmm. So how do you compete against Coinbase at their game? And uh, I think the custodians, as, as we see more and more third-party custodians over the next year or two, you know, Fidelity is saying they're going to launch Bitcoin custody in Q1. They're probably going to do something like uh, Bitcoin lending. I'm not, I, I don't know their plans. I don't mean to assert. So that's the challenge. W- w- where do the profit margins come from? Yeah, the one thing is that um, I do think because I had Tushar and Jake on my show talking about generalized mining, and they talked about it as a loss leading activity. So I think it's, you know, it's for them, it's just like helping to ensure that their investments do survive and thrive. But actually, I, I because you mentioned Fidelity and back to I and I, I'm just conscious of the time I do want to move on. So uh, last year, a lot of people felt that Bitcoin futures would lead to a rise in the price of Bitcoin. And they definitely, I think, gave Bitcoin sort of some sort of symbolic validation, which led to this short-lived bubble. But as we've seen this year, the existence of Bitcoin futures has not helped the price of Bitcoin. So why not? And then how do you think that will be different? Or, or do you think it will be different from the impact that we'll see from backed and fidelity launching? Yeah, you know, I, I, I have to admit to being somewhat uh, naive on that element as well. I thought that the Bitcoin futures would um, have a more meaningful impact than they had. One way to tell the story of last year's bubble, so Bitcoin peaked almost exactly with the launch of the futures. A common trend is that speculators will buy, you know, it's buy the rumor, sell the news is a common statement investing and trading. That's kind of exactly what happened here. There were a lot of people who had large speculative positions that in their heads were short term. So they were kind of weak hands. They were betting on an event. And the bet was, I'm going to buy ahead of the futures and I'm going to sell to the institutions who are buying via futures. What happened was just we didn't get much net buying from the futures. Uh, it's, it's very hard to know. You know, every time someone buys, that means there's a seller. So with futures for every buyer, there must be a seller. But so it's very hard to know, was there net buying or net selling? And what does that mean? Well, what, what it would mean is if there were a lot of institutions who had never bought before who were suddenly buying Bitcoin futures, for every buyer, there's a seller. But what it would mean is there would be arbitragers selling the futures and buying the underlying. The underlying in this case just being actual Bitcoin. It's hard to know uh, what the net kind of trading was in futures. There's a commitment of trader report that kind of breaks that down, but doesn't do a great job. But long story short, we didn't get much net selling. There wasn't much general buying by futures, uh, which surprised me a bit. It, it, I think, highlights um, just how many obstacles there are to institutional adoption. The futures did fix a lot of that. So you don't have to custody the futures. Uh, You don't have you don't deal with security issues. There's a lot you don't have to deal with. But institutional investing is a very slow, gradual decision-making process where, uh, I mean, something we hear a lot, for example, is, okay, great, the future's launched. Let's see them go three months without a major crisis. So let's, you know, let's see if the futures are limit up or limit down every other day. Let's see if they 
successfully track Bitcoin. I mean, what happens if the futures are trading at a massive premium to Bitcoin? Uh, there's just a lot that people need to see empirically. Trust is built empirically. What I mean by that is, let's say, and this, this is true on the custody side. So if a new custodian launches, doesn't matter if they do everything perfectly. They can have a SOC 1 audit. They can be audited by the best financial firms. They can have insurance. They can have every possible process in place. There's no way to really fully convince people they're trustworthy except time. The, why do we trust JP Morgan or State Street or, or Fidelity? Is it that we're all really doing deep diligence? No. It's that you know, if something, if someone's been up and running without its incident for years, and if they're trusted by other key players for years, then we trust them implicitly. So I think there's an element of this, this, this gradual and, 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 and there are a lot of wrenches thrown in, right? So, um, as soon as institutions were maybe thinking they would trust Bitcoin as a long-term investment, you get a, a really, really sharp fall and you get headlines of, uh, SEC regulatory action that do not impact Bitcoin at all, but that to someone casually observing, that's not as obvious, you know, it's maybe scary. You get this hash power war where there's a concern about, you know, um, you have Craig Wright saying first he's going to take over ABC, then he's going to take over BTC. And, and, you know, you and I might say that's not a credible threat, but to the endowment looking at the space, it's very hard for them to gauge. And just out of curiosity, was Block Tower trading the futures? And then also, I just want to reiterate that other question about what effect you think Backed and Fidelity will have. Gotcha. Sorry. Um, uh, we, uh, we we were not active future traders. We um, are set up to trade them and actively monitor them. Basically, right after they launched, they've traded almost entirely in line with the underlying, uh, the underlying being actual Bitcoin. So what we'd be looking to do with the futures is potentially arbitrage them. But we're not really an arbitrage focused firm. Uh, that's just not kind of what we're best at. And so and, and trading the futures against the underlying Bitcoin is pretty simple arbitrage most of the time. And so there's a few firms, for example, there's some big Chicago trading desks and uh, some big market making firms uh, elsewhere that are really world class arbitragers. They have, you know, um, the world's best electrical engineers to optimize latency. They have the best uh, computer scientists to optimize on the software side, uh, and they can do it in a very efficient way. And um my hope, actually, from a trading perspective, is that at some point, you're likely to see a massive divergence. Do It's a little bit like, uh, so in 2007, you had something called the Quackquake, where you had all of these algorithms running on Wall Street that were keeping markets uh, very efficient, air quotes. And, and efficient in this case just means there was base, there was very, very, very little arbitrage profit because the minute there was a penny, someone grabbed it. But then in 2007, the algorithms kind of broke. There was a there was a like four standard deviation event um, that, that seemed minor to the outside. It, basically, all the algorithms were doing the same thing. They all kind of uh, got caught on the wrong side of a trade. They all lost a ton of money, and many got turned off. And so suddenly, the arbitrage profit skyrocketed. Suddenly, there was a lot of money to be made if you weren't in the bad position of having just lost a lot of money with your algorithms and having to justify that to your bosses and explaining why your algorithm shouldn't be turned off forever. Um, so I think we're likely to see that at some point with the future. Something will go wrong. Here, here's an example. So if there's an airdrop or a hard fork with Bitcoin, the futures will probably be mispriced because instead of it just being, you know, it, it, under normal conditions, it's a really simple arbitrage. The Bitcoin future is the same as Bitcoin through some period of time. But if there's going to be a hard fork, well, what is the future really, right? So if I own Bitcoin and there's a hard fork, I get both assets. If there's an airdrop, I get both assets. With the future, it's not clear if you're going to get that second asset. So the fair price of the future will diverge from the underlying in complex ways. And that, I hope, will create opportunity. Um, I, on the question about BACT, uh, I don't think it's going to be a sudden, meaningful event. I think it's going to be slow and gradual. BACT, Fidelity, all this stuff. Uh, and this was a mistake that I made, by the way. Um, something I was saying for most of this year is that we see this really clear path of institutional infrastructure being built, and I think it's going to be bullish. And I have to concede that that was, kind of a, that was a bad call by me, that the institutional infrastructure is playing out as I expected and explained. But it's it's... I, I better understand, we see that empirically, the, the, the psychological way this plays out with institutions, which is just, it's as slow as you think it is, it's even slower. A trader on Twitter earlier this year posted screenshots of a private conversation you had with him, in which you appear to be trying to glean tips on his technical analysis, and then also dropped some quote-unquote insider information about Stellar, which was the fact that it was acquiring chain. Insider trading the definition of it specifically applies to securities. However, within cryptos, there is some uncertainty about which ones could be considered securities. And many people believe that Ripple and Stellar are 
those that are more likely to be considered securities than not. So if that turns out to be the case, then your conversation with him would constitute insider trading. So how do you defend your sharing of this inside information? (laughs) Social media is a weird place. I actually haven't really talked about this publicly because it's a very, well, I I answered a couple of criticisms, but um, some elements of it are, are very hard to address briefly because people don't understand the laws and the regulations uh, at all. So this is actually kind of like the the first time, I guess I'll talk about it, um, or, or a, a piece of it. So um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll address the point you raised. I was thinking through of kind of like all the nonsense the, the, the uh, guy raised. Um, so on Stellar specifically, we've actually never, ever traded Stellar, ever. And I could have just said that on Twitter. I could have just answered. I had like 50 people being like, did you trade Stellar, blah, blah, blah. And I never answered because I don't want to be in a position of justifying individual thoughts or trades or positions to people on Twitter, right? It's social media. That's not um, that's not who I'm responsible to. That's not who I'm a fiduciary of. And I'm not going to be accountable in an ongoing way to saying what is my current position or P&L to random kind of people on Twitter. Um, so I thought it would set a very bad precedent to directly answer it. But the reality is we've actually never, ever traded Stellar uh, and insider trading or requires trading first. Second, assuming that seller is a security, uh, let's assume that people don't understand. Uh, th- this is this is like an awkward thing to explain, but it's actually kind of fairly simple legally, which is what is insider trading? It's actually slightly complex because it differs for different types of assets and depending on your fiduciary position. But the classic example people use is if you overhear information in the Goldman Sachs elevator, you're probably legally allowed to trade on it. So it may be insider information, but it's not illegal insider trading because you didn't do anything wrong. So what does it mean to do something wrong? So if you uh, if you had a fiduciary obligation or if anyone had a fiduciary obligation with the, that information that you received, then it's probably illegal for you to act on it. So for example, if I pay someone to give, if I pay someone at uh, Chain or Stellar to give me information and it was illegal for them to divulge it to me or was a breach of obligation and I then trade on it, that's illegal. If I don't trade on it, it's not illegal to uh, report or share information, of course, that's that's protected speech. But 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 even if you do trade on it, let, let's assume that, that um, let's take the case of trading. If you paid for it or if there was any kind of exchange or if it was a uh, if there was any fiduciary breach in any chain of of kind of that process, then it's illegal. If you accidentally gain information and the way you gained it, no one broke any rule at all, no one broke any obligation, then you're entirely allowed to trade it. Now, I, I'm even hesitant to say that because it's more complex than that, and and I and that's not entirely accurate, and that's why this is a tricky thing to discuss. But um, so I, I guess the real answer here is insider trading requires trading, which we didn't do. Insider trading requires a breach of fiduciary obligation, which there wasn't. And insider trading requires it to be a security, which I assume it is actually. So th- there's nothing, uh, it's kind of nothing, I guess, is the way to put it. Now, if if we had wanted to trade on it, I would. we have like three external legal providers, and I would have consulted with them on the exact specifics of how I got the information in terms of whether it's legal. We didn't, so there was no real question to ask. The reason I'm even, I was even hesitant to use the, that series of explanations that kind of make it very clear that we didn't do anything legally wrong is because I also care about ethics, right? It's not legal is not the only thing. I don't just want to be a legal actor in space. I want to be an ethical actor in space. So then you get a question of, well, what, is it wrong for me to share that information? And that, I guess, is a little bit subjective. You know, my own view on this, I guess, is it comes back to that obligation. So I received the inf- so I received the information from a source who had re- who had it, it's, it was kind of this accidental find, and um, I didn't violate anyone's trust in sharing it. The person who gave it to me didn't violate anyone's trust in sharing it. So like who I, I'm not sure who I'm whose trust I'm violating or who who I'm hurting or who I'm ethically violating. But I can imagine that there is subjective opinions. Like where the, here's another way of framing it. So if someone is a retail speculator who doesn't have people to share information with, who doesn't have resources at their disposal beyond what they see on Twitter or what they see on CoinDesk, they could say, yeah, but that's not fair. It's not fair that you have information I don't have. And that's always the case, of course, in markets. So so the job of a investor is to find something others don't have, either information or analysis, right? That's how you beat the market. That's how you beat. That's how you put on a winning trade. For every buyer, there's a seller. You're trying to you know, buy when other people shouldn't be selling. So you're either trying to get information or analysis others don't have. But of course, there are ethical and legal limitations around that that I take very, very, very seriously. 
So I don't want to, so it, it, you know, it, it's a complex discussion. I can say like, we, we really hold ourselves to the highest legal and, and ethical standards uh, that, that I can think of that in the industry. And, and I, I can't say that we'll never make mistakes, but certainly on this, it, it's about as far as you can get from anything that I would regret or have a guilty conscience over. It, it's all, you know, this is the nature of social media, right? It's awkward in that to publicly defend myself from accusations that the people making them don't really understand what they're even saying gets very awkward. And then people say, oh yeah, we'll prove it. Prove you never traded seller. Well, there isn't really any way for me to prove it on Twitter, right? I, I could I could present audited financial statements and people would say you photoshopped it. But, and of course, it's not a good way to run a business to present audited financial statements to random internet trolls when they ask for them. So, you know, it, it's, it's a very awkward challenge. Um, I'd say the one other thing that was kind of funny to me, because it, this is something I'm really, really consistent on, uh, more so I, I think probably that almost anyone in the industry is, is disclosure and honesty about the economic relationships. So whenever I ever recommend an investment in any form, I always disclose the relationship. So if I'm an advisor to a project, uh, I, this is even true in private. So when I introduce uh, another fund manager to a project, I say, am I receiving any in any way economic benefit from this introduction? In other words, are we just an investor? And if we're an investor, are we likely investing at the same price you're investing? Or did we get a sweetheart deal? You know, I try to proactively disclose all of that because we really want to be kind of at the highest level of ethics in this, in this industry. We're in it for the long run. Reputations matter. So it was, I'll be honest, that, that fiasco was very, very frustrating to me because we're working so hard and in many cases not doing profitable things because we want to be ethical and we want a reputation for ethics. So then to have that maligned in a, in a very complex, in, in, in an ignorant way that's complex to explain was frustrating. And, and oh, so tying to the disclosure thing. So the other thing that uh, was part of that was I was accused of like pump and dumping, which was the exact opposite of the actual kind of conversation. So the ethical way to talk up an investment is what Warren Buffett does, what Ray Dalio does, what, uh, you know, what anyone does who from their investment world, which is you tell the world, I own this thing. Here's why I own it. Here's why I believe in it. That's the, that's called ethical disclosure. That's what you're ethically required to do. That's the right way to do it. That's the moral thing to do. And of course, it, there's nothing wrong with saying I own Bitcoin. I intend to hold it till I die. And I think you should too. And here's why. What a pump and dump is, is where you tell people to buy and you sell into their buying. You try to induce them to do something and you're doing the opposite. That's unethical. I, I have never done that. I will never do that. So if I ever say on a podcast or on Twitter that I'm bullish something, it means I'm genuinely bullish on it and I will be adding, not taking, not, not selling into that tweet. Um, now with that said, I'm, 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 I almost never make public investment recommendations partly for this reason. It just gets complex. Like here's a scenario. Like let's say I tweet, I'm bullish on Monero. And then let's say 12 hours later, something fundamentally happens that's horrible for Monero. Well, I'm now in a very awkward position because if I then change my mind and sell, I, I get accused of pump and dumping or market manipulation or something like that. And if I don't sell, I'm potentially hurting our investors, right? It's not fair to our investors for me to not take intelligent investment action because I tweeted something. So the answer that I've come up with is don't tweet investment recommendations, you know, don't, don't tell people to do things. So I almost never, uh, in any forum recommend investments. I almost never disclose our positions for the same reason. It, even disclosing a position in the sense of like, as I did today, so I disclosed that we own Bitcoin and Monero, and those are actually kind of two exceptions I make because I view them as long-term buy and holds. That's how I, that's how I genuinely view them. I think that's unlikely to change, but I'm, I'm even reluctant to say that because if I tell you I own these five other assets, well, what if I change my mind the next day? Someone might accuse me of saying that I own those assets as of an investment recommendation. So I don't want to be in that awkward ethical dilemma of do I serve my investors or do I serve kind of the people I told this to? So the, the, the answer in this case is just kind of being quiet. We're getting close to the end of 2018. What trends or events do you expect to happen in crypto in 2019? Um, oh, real, real change of topic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see. Well, actually, so you can make this answer about anything you want, but I've had to jettison so many questions while you were chatting that one thing I would like you maybe to touch on is why it is that you think games is one of the first areas in which crypto could take off. So if you could include that. Sure. In your, yeah. I'll touch on both. Uh, so I think 
let's see. On the bullish side, I think one theme will be institutional adoption. It just won't be uh, a line in the sand. It won't be sudden. It's going to be gradual. And I think it'll gain steam over the course of the next year. Uh, another th- theme, I think, will be the first, first hints of real use cases outside of kind of the, the, the store value Bitcoin type use cases, meaning the first dApps, the first usage of decentralized applications at a meaningful scale. So right now, you know, there's a lot of decentralized applications, uh, some of which work like Augur, that just don't have active usage in a meaningful sense. And that's discouraging. Like it was almost better when we had when we didn't have dApps because we could hope. The problem is if a dApp launches and it works and no one wants to use it, that's kind of the worst scenario, right? Because what, what are we hoping for? So I, and, and there's a lot, there have been a lot of obstacles to adoption. There's been scalability, poor user interfaces, uh, consumer education and marketing. There's a lot of elements to this, but I'm very optimistic that in 2019, we'll see the first minor killer dApps. I think they're likely to come in gambling, gaming, uh, or something like remittances. I'm not sure. It might be monetization of social media networks. It's likely to be things that aren't world changing, but that are simple and easy to adopt and and a very clear improvement of the consumer experience without requiring major changes in consumer behavior. So I think that'll become a story of, okay, we've got a proof of concept. We have these one or two dApps, not that they're used by 100 million people, but maybe they have 200,000 users, right? It's kind of a proof of concept. The third that I think, I don't know if it happens next year or the year or or after, but uh, Ray Dalio is the CIO founder of Bridgewater. Bridgewater is one of the biggest, most successful hedge funds in the world. Ray Dalio is a brilliant macroeconomist. And uh, he has recently been going on kind of a a publicity tour talking about how he thinks uh, the US dollar is going to suffer uh, its, re- its status as global reserve currency will be brought into question, and he thinks that'll actually lead to a potentially a financial crisis in the next uh, three to five years. That story, I think, is very bullish crypto and Bitcoin uh, and, and, and any crypto asset that is competing directly with Bitcoin for store value, because um, right now, the story of you should own Bitcoin because central banks can depreciate fiat. That's not a very powerful story. If I'm an American and I'm seeing my purchasing power erode at 2% a year, or even if you think inflation is much, much, even if you had hidden inflation is much higher and it's 5% a year, there isn't a sense of urgency. Okay, 5% a year is a lot, but I, we just saw Bitcoin lose 70% of its value. That doesn't seem like a great alternative. If instead the story starts becoming, wow, that 5% might become 10% a year, 15%, 20%. People, are, people the, the, the story might be, we may enter a period where people are losing faith in the largest fiat currencies. We may uh, enter a period where the U.S. dollar doesn't become something like Venezuela or Zimbabwe, but maybe it becomes something like Argentina or halfway to Argentina. That story, I think, will lead at the margin to meaningful flight of capital out of fiat and into cryptocurrency. And and it's hard to – the timing of that story depends on a lot of things having nothing to do with crypto. But uh, I, I, I would – make a concrete prediction that that will be kind of a story that people are buying crypto, that hedge fund managers like Ray Dalio are buying crypto in the next three years um, as a hedge against uh, the dollar losing global reserve status and fiat currencies in general being mass depreciated. Yeah, I I think I used to follow that train of thought and, and I, I still can. But after hearing Christian Lagarde's remarks, the head of the IMF, where she basically talked about these central bank digital currencies. And I realized that, you know, this could happen maybe sooner rather than later. Then I started thinking like, oh, maybe because as we've seen with services like Facebook and, and other big tech companies, I feel like people don't really care about decentralization or privacy or things like that. And so I feel like if you end up with a digital version of one of these big uh, fiat currencies, then we could just sort of see cryptocurrencies marginalized. But do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. So there's a few. So I I agree with the comment on privacy. I think um, so like here, here are the core crypto use cases and and they really haven't changed. uh, Certainly the the most likely ones of the next few years. So one is the privacy censorship seizure resistance. Demand for that, I think, increases in contrast to uh, crypto fiat. So as China rolls out crypto yuan, a, a type of money where they can monitor in real time with big data analytics, where they have the ability to instantly, with the click of a bureaucratic button, freeze your assets, I think that will increase demand for effectively black market money for an alternative. And Bitcoin or, or crypto generally, I think, will be very attractive. Now, that only gets you so far. So most people will be law-abiding. Most people will be happy with crypto yuan, and, and other countries will roll this out. 
but that probably does potentially support something like a 10x of the crypto markets that in of itself just having um having chinese people view bitcoin as like the thought process is okay i trust the government i like the government crypto yuan is a good innovation overall but there is a scary element here and having a little bit of, of the equivalent of gold. I think this was the mentality of a lot of Americans 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago of, OK, you know, I, I trust the government generally, but I'm going to have a bar of gold in my buried in my backyard kind of thing. So I think you do get a little bit of buying from that and that and a little bit could could 10x the tiny crypto market. The bigger use case uh, in this regard is probably depreciation resistance. So even as you move to kind of crypto uh, private currencies or, or crypto fiat, there, to the extent there's a concern that central banks will increase supply of that and will be devaluing that in an ongoing way, more and more people will be looking to, to you know, um, maintain their wealth, to store value, or at least to hedge against aggressive mass depreciation. That's probably, I, I'll say a, a comment. So I've had a, a fun conversation with a, uh, a, a young fund manager named Murad, who has articulated very aggressively um, the idea of depreciation resistance as the use case of Bitcoin. And I'm not sure that's going to be the biggest one, but it's definitely a big one. And th- that's kind of the story we're talking about over the next three years as fiat potentially is, continu- is continued to depreciate. Yeah, we'll see. I, I, that's another thing where I'm not sure people really care unless they're in places where there's hyperinflation. But so we're, we're basically out of time. So where can people learn more about you and BlockTower? Probably Twitter is a good, anytime I write anything in any forum, I end up posting a link there. So it's at Ari David Paul on Twitter. Um, I know. Yeah. I have to say in researching this podcast, I was impressed by the sheer volume of tweets. I was like, wow, Ari spends a lot of time on Twitter. But there is a lot of really interesting stuff on there. So I do urge people to check out Ari's Twitter yeah, timeline. You know, it, Twitter's amazing in that, like, when I when it lo- when I'm on Twitter all day, it's usually when I'm traveling, and it's like I'm in a cab for five minutes. What can I do? Well, kind of Twitter's kind of the only <laughs> thing, you know. Or it's like I'm 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 sitting in an airplane boarding, but they're gonna tur- they're gonna close the gates in in ten minutes, you know. So it's like okay, I can't. I'm I'm, lo- I'm gonna, about to lose Wi-Fi. I got ten minutes, or uh, or I'm standing in front of an elevator and I pull out my phone, and it's like okay, respond to a Telegram message, look at Twitter. It just it's uh, I think of it as it's like sand. If you have a glass of marbles sand kind of fill, you know adds more volume to the glass without increasing the, the size of the glass it kind of fits <laughs> in between so it's like i can hop on twitter for 30 seconds and write a tweet like also i i write really quickly so i'll do like a 20 uh 20 tweet tweet storm in like literally two minutes it's not uh i i don't put a lot of time into into crafting the stuff huh that's interesting because that because it it feels more substantive uh, as if it took you some time. But anyway, all right. So people, check out Ari on Twitter. Um, and thank you for coming on Unchained. Thanks very much, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Ari, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening.